0: Welcome to another episode of Art Heals All Wounds. I'm your host, Pam Yuzel. On this show, we meet artists transforming lives with their work. How many people were playing air guitar just now? Raise your hand. I did not raise my hand. I never play air guitar. In fact, before coming into the recording studio just now, I tried to play air guitar and I didn't even know how to start. My next guest apparently plays a very mean air guitar. When she was in college, she was playing air guitar in front of a male friend and he said, huh, I didn't think women did air guitar. That was an aha moment for her. That aha moment became one of many that appear in a delightful comic book series called Gender Studies. Awan Mance, a writer and illustrator living in Oakland, California, is one of many people whose work expands the very narrow window of representation in media. Besides being a visual artist, she's also a professor of English and Ethnic Studies at Mills College. Since about 1996, She's been focusing on art much more seriously. Her series of portraits, 1001 Black Men, really put her on the map, so to speak. She's been a panelist at Comic-Con and on countless other panels and forums, and her work has appeared in many different anthologies and in The New Yorker. We'll be talking about the importance of representation, both what it's like to represent others and what it feels like when you feel represented in the work of others. You're listening to Art Heals All Wounds. First up, the art of conversation, where I hear from you. You can get more information about this podcast and get in touch with me on the Facebook page, Art Heals All Wounds, and on Twitter and Instagram at art Heals Podcast. I got a great post on my Facebook page from Marjorie Sturm. If you don't know Marjorie Sturm or her work, she's an amazing documentary filmmaker. You should definitely check out her film, The Cult of J.T. Leroy. It's an absolute must-see. Marjorie wrote that she appreciated the question that was asked in the last podcast, episode one. If you didn't hear that episode, someone wrote in just talking about the lack of um, motivation that she was finding for her work during the pandemic. And Marjorie wrote, It can be challenging to fight these thoughts of futility, especially during COVID. The what's the point? Where is this going? And it's easy to spiral into something that overlaps with nihilism or the like. But I wonder if there's a link with creating art. The process in and of itself that just remedies that by shifting energy away from a purely mental space, becoming more embodied, especially with certain mediums like theater and dance. But maybe all of them. Maybe this is part of the healing, just getting out of that spiraling mind into a space of joy, pleasure that returns when engaged creatively, shifting the energy to the body. After I read this post from Marjorie, I started thinking about that whenever I do something creative or even just the act of getting off the Zoom space for a while and doing anything that involves using my body. How does that make me feel? And where does the energy reside? I'm really curious to know what you think of this. And if you notice any sort of shift in your mind, in your body, let me know what you think of this. Up next, our deep dive with this episode's guest on Art Heals All Wounds. You're listening to Art Heals All Wounds. Listen, and let us inspire you. When I was in third grade, I was obsessed with the show Lost in Space. I'm not talking about any of the remakes, but the original show that ran from 1965 to 1968. It's about the Robinson family that literally gets Lost in Space. It was loosely based on the book, The Swiss Family Robinson. In Lost in Space, the family has a son and two daughters. The older daughter was an adult, so she wasn't very interesting to me. The younger daughter, Penny, though, I was completely mesmerized by her. She had this long black hair, and she was always being disobedient. She just had this amazing way of narrowing her eyes when her parents tried to scold her or to tell her what to do. She was in full blown adolescent rebellion, and I wanted to be just like her one day. It's amazing how important she was to me. I realized now that I was longing for someone who represented either who I felt like I was or who I wanted to be. One of the things I'm going to be talking about with my next guest is the importance of representation. Awan and I have known each other since we were both quite young. We met when we were freshmen in college. Awan, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Well, thank you for having me. You and I met in the 80s, and I knew you were a writer and a rugby player. I didn't know you were an artist, though. When did you start doing visual art?
1: In my art-related bios, um, and it is really the truth. um, I always describe myself as a lifelong artist and writer. I have said many times that... The only thing I've been longer than I've been an artist is a black person, <laughs> which I've been for life. But I have been, all art has always been a part of my life. And, um, and it was, um, you know, I, I had the fortune of having parents who encouraged me to draw and paint. Um, when I was a kid, even in elementary school, I grew up in the New York area on Long Island. And uh, my parents would take me to the same art stores where art students would buy their supplies to bet my paint. And, um, and I took myself very seriously as an artist. I spent many hours in the library, even in college. If I skipped class to go to the library, which this actually happened, I would go and just go to the art history section and just, just go through um, and read about artists and look at their work. I really loved the kind of picture portfolios of the work and just study artists' work. And so... I'm very much self-taught in art history, self-taught as an artist, um, and it's just always been a part of my life. I will brag and say I won my first art contest in kindergarten uh, for a self-portrait, which I think my mom still has. Um, And I used to, I drew a lot of people and animals. Um, I tend to obsess around a specific interest, and art has always been that interest, but it always intersected with my other interests. So for about four or five years um, I was also a big nerd. So late elementary and through middle school, I was obsessed with being a mammalian um, animal behaviorist. And so <laughs> I drew a, I, it's 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 so bad, Pam. It's just, it's so, it was such a interesting time. Um,
0: <laughs> Didn't you make your own, um, a nature book or something
1: like that? Oh, yes. Yes, Pam. Thank you for reminding me. <laughs> yeah, this was another thing. Oh, I'm so glad you reminded me because I have these books still. Uh, probably from about sixth grade to about ninth or tenth grade when I decided I actually wanted to have friends um (laughs) during that time period I created a lot of books I wrote books about natural history illustrated books um books about you know we'd uh spend a lot of time we'd go camping every year in upstate New York and I'd write stories about the small towns we'd pass through um and i i did a lot of writing and illustrating of stories and poetry always you know writing my poem and then doing a drawing for it and i have books and books of that kind of material um and i have to say i look back on it now and i think i really like that drawing you know so it's you know <laughs> um and and i you know it was it was the main thing that i did when i wasn't at school and it was, a, it, was a, it was a real pleasure to have this avocation that could be a part of anything that I was interested in. I also played the piano since kindergarten, and I would often draw musicians, or if I discovered a new piece, I'd want to draw a scene that kind of suggested to me the era in which that piece was written. Um, And it really became art really early on. Actually, thank you for helping me pull this together, became the lens through which I could have navigated the different changes in my interests um, and the world around me.
0: Wow, that is really fascinating. I saw some of your early paintings and they're incredible, but really the first project that I became aware of was your portrait series, A Thousand and One Black Men. Can you tell me what motivated you to start this series
1: and what it is yeah my um a thousand and one black men series which you can see at the uh, website eightrock.com, rock.com that's eight rock.com or you can just search a thousand and one black men um is a series of exactly what it sounds like it's a thousand and one portraits of men of african descent um mostly people i would encounter um or see in the bay area but also wherever i went I would take my sketchbook if I was traveling in New York or every year uh, before the pandemic, going to Comic-Con San Diego or on vacation to uh, the South. Um, and I just wanted to create a body of work that represented at least some of the diversity in Black men's experiences and lives and um and it was a real journey. It was a six and a half year journey of creating those Thousand and One portraits.
0: Hmm. Why did you want to make this project? Why was this a series you wanted to do?
1: I created Thousand and One Black Men um, for a couple of reasons. I was looking to um, create more artwork using a broader range of media. I used to do a lot of painting and um, and I love painting, um, particularly acrylic painting, but I was interested in switching more to drawing. Drawing is my first love, ink on paper. And so I wanted to start working more in drawing. Um, and also I wanted to create work that was more accessible for people who wanted to buy. So, you know, I got to meet people in the zine community and they really got me into this idea of creating art that is um, reproducible. And, and so that was kind of in the back of my mind when I was thinking about it. But it was really um the idea that even some African American media, um, I think in its the nature of media, um, sometimes depicts a relatively narrow swath of black men and black men's experiences, even in those publications that are celebrating black men. I mean, no publication can do everything. And so I don't mean to call any media on the carpet, but I, I thought, you know, maybe a different kind of media. Um a portrait series that was not just 10 or 20 or even 100, but was a thousand and one portraits, maybe that would really give, um, would really be the kind of project that could show the full range and really celebrate the full range of all that Black men and masculinity is. You know, I'm very interested in the notion of the objectification of Black men and the use of Black male bodies to sell products, but also to sell pernicious ideas like fear and rage Mm. and and um, things like um, the prison industrial complex. And so I'm I was interested in pushing back on the selective use of black men's images to sell products and ideas, some of which were detrimental to black communities. And then and and in some in some ways creates a new media, uh, a new set of representations that would serve the interests of black people.
0: Hmm. I think you really accomplished that with that series because the scope of men who are in this portrait series is really fantastic. And they're they're men that we all, if we think about it, would recognize from our daily lives, but we don't necessarily see them in other forms of media.
1: I'm glad that was successful. Um, I will say, I have to concede um, that although I, I... I, it was an ambitious project um and it really i think you know i i did a thousand and one portraits so in that way it was, it was successful but i think the most interesting and in some ways the most challenging part for me as the artist was the ways that my own limited view um exposed itself mm-hmm. I, you know i went into the project i think if you're going into a big project you have to have a sense of your own infallibility. I I can do this. I can finally represent black men as they are, um, and ex, uh, you know, uh, the full range of black men's experiences. I see black people, and I can actually reflect that in my art. But what I uh, took me actually about three hundred or so drawings to realize that I was not actually representing the full range of black men I encountered. I was representing. I was doing portraits of those black men who in some ways were very easy for me to see. I I noticed them when I was out on the street or at the cafe or at the bookstore because they resembled my friends Mm -hmm. and they looked like my dad, you know, people in suits, people with glasses, people who were, you know, sitting at the cafe working at their laptops. Um, Now, there are a lot of Black men who do all of those things. But if those are the only Black men I'm drawing, then there are a lot of Black men I'm not drawing. Mm -hmm. And so after 300 days of just drawing Oh, let's see. Oh, I'm going to do this guy. I actually started putting more intentionality into my, you know, know, adjusting my vision. And, you know, in some ways, you know, as many people say get right with myself and realize that and start noticing who I wasn't seeing. Mm. And of course, if I do that, then I also have to think about, well, why am I not seeing these people? Mm. Um, And that was, that was pretty, that was intense. Um, I think in some ways, for me, that was probably one of the most important parts of the project.
0: That is really interesting. Why you or any of us don't see certain people. Recently, what I've seen in your work in comics is that you're doing a lot more um, things around gender as well. I'm hoping we can talk a little bit about this idea of not being seen, whether it's by the artist or by society in general and your work. Because it sounds like you did a lot of soul-searching while doing this portrait series of a Thousand and one Black men. How do you think that that changed your thought about um, representation and what you were going to draw?
1: Well, that's a great question Pam. You know, you're i'm I'm learning so much about my own work just from the questions you're asking me. Um, because my relationship to art is very different now than it was when I started my project. Um, you know it was nineteen ninety six when I Really decided I need art in my life. I'm going to take it very seriously. I'm going to expand my media that I work in which I work. And then it was not until 2010 that I started the Thousand and One Black Men series. So it was a long time, many many years later. Mm. Up until that time, you know, I would draw what I felt like drawing, um, and um, I loved to create new work for every show. And then once I started creating the Thousand and One Black Men series. I also started to have this feeling of accountability. I was drawing a group of which I am not a part. We share the identity of being Black, but I am not a Black man. Mm -hmm. And so I realized how, not precarious, but there's a responsibility. If you're depicting people whom you are not, and you want to do it in a way that will make I don't want to say, well, make those people happy. But what I wanted was for when Black men saw this body of work, for them to say, yes, that is who we are. Mm. If that happened, then I felt successful. And when you have a thousand and one drawings, it was not my goal for every Black man who saw the series to say, I like all of these drawings. But for people to see the breadth of work and feel seen and also say, yeah, you know, this reflects this reflects who we are. Um, in all of our um, diversity and the different paths we've taken and sometimes points of conflict and controversy, this is, this is who we are. And starting to have a sense of that accountability, I also started having a sense of an audience. And it, really, it feels really differently to create work thinking somebody's going to look at this. What do I want those people to think when I am doing that work? And that is a big, that's a much bigger part of the art that I create today. Mm. Thinking about as I draw someone, if I draw a person who is non-binary, or I draw a person who is Asian American, and I want that person to not feel like this is a dehumanizing, stereotyping representation.
0: Mm. How is just the process of doing these drawings, and then add to that, getting the reaction from your audience, how does that affect you? In terms of I don't know your your feelings about where you might go as an artist, I mean is it I, I can imagine it's absolutely great to get positive feedback. Have you ever gotten any negative reactions
1: that's a great question i have I have gotten some negative reactions huh. um, not about any of the autobiographical comics I've done, but about my Thousand and One Black Men series, uh particularly. Um, and it's interesting. I've uh I've been made aware of the negative reactions I think two or three times. Um and I've paid a lot of attention. It's mattered to me. Um African American women. One was a woman who was about ninety six years old and um and she felt like the drawings reminded her of the uh, draw the way that some products would depict black people when she was a girl. Mm. And I know exactly what she's talking about. Yeah. <laughs> And I don't want her to think that these are kind of those really old racist caricatures. But when she looked at those drawings, that is exactly what she saw. Wow. And then there was a woman who I don't know her name, and she and I actually didn't talk, but I heard through a curator that when she looked at, she saw about 250 of the 1,001 Black men drawings at a show at um college in San Francisco. and she complained to the curator that she felt like these images were not um were too cartoony and were not dignified um and uh I'm not sure if she used the word dignified but um that you know that they were not serious enough um mm. and um and I get it I you know I I certainly understand you know, I thought it was interesting that these were black women because I've had the diametric opposite response from black men. Mm -hmm. Um, but I understand the protectiveness of black men's image Mm -hmm. because of the vulnerability of black men to all manner of incarceration, violence, black women too, but at a different rate. Um, and, um, and because black women, I think are more aware than most of the, uh, the objectification and the uses of black male bodies, the stereotyping of those bodies and the exploitation of those bodies, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, I think whenever a black person is depicted in a public setting that um, black people collectively keep an eye out for how people who aren't black may interpret those images. Mm-hmm. If I was showing this at an all black or majority black art venue, I think I would have had a different reaction, perhaps Mm -hmm. because everyone who was there could trust that the people who saw these images also, of course, saw black people as human. But I think it's different if you're showing your work in a place where most of the viewers will not be black. Mm -hmm. I think some people become very become really vigilant around those depictions.
0: Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, a, a lot of your work that I know is, um, as you said, you got started um, with the zines, but I would say it's comic, like a comic book type work. And you've also had comics in The New Yorker. So I'm wondering what your attraction is to doing something in comics. I mean, I will say that your painting style is not radically different. I mean, it's you have a very distinctive style, which is quite unique and amazing. And as you said earlier, it's very accessible. But you did make this move to comics. And I'm wondering why comics? What made you go in that direction?
1: I've never been a huge reader of superhero comics, and I don't—that's—that's that's not the kind of work that I do. Although much respect to people who do it, um, and I, I do enjoy science fiction and speculative quite a bit. But I would, um, when I started getting involved in zines and zine culture, um, and I would create zines of. My thousand and one black men drawings. I put together, you know, 20 drawings of old men from the series and call it a gathering of old black men and sell it as a zine, things like that. Um and I started meeting comic creators, particularly queer comic creators. Um, and I always wanna, you know, shout out to John Macy, who's an award-winning uh queer comic creator, amazing artist mm. and and thinker, and Ed Luce, who's um, Comics are just wonderful, and also teaches at CCA in the comic program. And you know, I love their work, and um, they were really supportive. Bought some of my zines, and we'd run into each other. And um, eventually, you know, their suggestion that I should do comics uh, um, made me finally decide, okay, I will. (laughs) I'll give it a try. I I always thought it took too much time. I thought, oh, you've got to write a story, and then you've got to draw it, and then somehow get some letters in there. Um, It just seemed like an incredible amount of work. Um, But then when I did my first comic, I thought, this is so cool. I can actually tell stories in this medium that I've never felt like telling before. What was your first comic? My first comic, um, I called it Gender Studies, and it was about my time in college and all the things I learned about gender from the men I knew in college. From the men you knew in college. Yeah. Yeah. Can you elaborate on that? Oh, yeah. Um, you know, it was kind of in some ways it was a gender journey, um, you know, thinking of um, the guys I uh, had crushes on um, or had some sort of relationship with. And as much as that was done in my life, which really it wasn't at that time, um, you know, just, um, you know, being the person that I am, you um, but having not the language of, say, gender transgressive or you know, people talk about gender, queer identity. People didn't talk about that in the 80s. Um, but I remember little things like um, uh, a very good friend of mine and I thought, well, we must have a crush on each other. But what we, I think what really was the case is we were basically the same person. We liked <laughs> all the same clothes. We loved shopping at all the same stores. And it was just this synergy. Or we actually, um, you know, he was, you know, my year, but we 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 had a lot in common gender-wise, and it felt like maybe in the absence of other language for that, we thought, oh, well, we must be into each other, which we actually were. We were great friends. <laughs> we were still good friends. Or um, I remember uh, being in uh, my off-campus apartment once, and um, and a friend coming over, and my roommate, who was still a student at the time, and I were... Doing air guitar, which we did quite a bit, to some of our favorite (laughs) classic rock songs. Really, you should have heard our version of um, Born to Run. It was probably (laughs) the best singing and air guitar. Um, But we were doing our air guitar to Jukebox Hero. um, And uh, he said... I've never seen women do air guitar before and it had never occurred to me that that was a thing, a gender thing. Right. And, uh, you know, and so I just collected those little moments and put them together in a uh, comic Mm. and, um, illustrated them. I changed, I changed the ethnicities of people. Um, of course I changed everybody's names, everyone's appearance. Um, but they're all true anecdotes. And, um, and you know, it, and it kind of puts together, if not a linear story, certainly a a trajectory. Yeah,
0: I feel like a lot of your work really depicts people who aren't often
1: depicted. Um, that's a really important aspect of art for me, um, particularly art produced by women of all ethnicities and people of color of all genders. The idea of getting stories out there, uh, visual stories, whether it's just in a a single sculpture or a giant um, oil painting or a comic, um, telling, showing the world from your perspective. Hmm. Well, this is what this looks like to me. You know, when I think about art for, I I wouldn't even say art, I'm just thinking media in general, um, and a lot of the media that I consumed as a young person, um, you know, something like the Brady Bunch, um, which was a very funny show and I enjoyed it quite a bit, but it certainly gives us a sense of one particular trajectory in, and the erasure of of all other identities. Mm. I have a very large black extended family. My dad was one of eight kids. Um, and so I had 15 first cousins. And an army of aunts and uncles and and so I was you know surrounded by black community, which kind of inoculated me against this notion that what I see in media that doesn't represent black people is in any way, shape, or form real, or that I should expect it to be representative. But I believe there is something so powerful when you see media that reflects the way you see the world. It's a lot. In some ways it's a it's a burden of pleasure burden of pleasure to carry with you this notion that your reality is real, even if you don't see it. Um, And that was how I was raised. Um, But I will say, when I went into the Metropolitan Museum of Art, probably about three years ago, and I walked into one of the rooms in the American Wing, and I saw a giant pot by the enslaved Black artist, Potter Dave. And it was so moving to me. And then all of these other pieces in that area that depicted either it was either art by black people or about black people from the antebellum period mm. and the civil war era i've been going to that museum for as long as i can remember and then in my 50s to see this representation that reflected back a part of the of history that actually included my my people mm. it was so moving and it made me feel seen in this powerful way mm. and it and it was transformative i'm older i have you no know, I have some privilege and some power, and yet when I think about how much that meant to me, I realize how much representation is important. Mm-hmm. In that same visit, I'll just say quickly that I learned that the G's Ben quilters, these African-American women from a tiny southern town, uh, that they have to reach by ferry. Their quilts are now a part of, 20 some odd of their quilts, I believe it is, are a part of the Metropolitan Museum's permanent collection. And when I learned that, I just felt like someone else could see that Black people made beautiful things. Mm -hmm. And that was, you know, first the art that just shows that Black people are beautiful. And then the notion, the acknowledgement that Black people create beautiful work. Um, It matters. Representation matters. To see yourself expands your sense of possibility. Mm -hmm. And then to see someone bringing that work into a bigger collection gives you a sense that people recognize the, the, the validity of your creative, your creative talents. Mm.
0: Wow. Has that affected then how you go back and do your art?
1: I don't know if it changed how I approach art, but it certainly changed um, my feeling about my own work and Black art in general. I mean, I thought Black art i think black art is amazing and beautiful and wonderful and fortunately my mother when i was a kid would try to pick as many of the children's books that had work by and about black people Mm. um, art by black people um for us to see that there are black stories and look at how black people look we draw each other and we draw our reality and it was just so valuable Mm. um so i never had to wonder are there black artists You know, it's a huge institution that has had some controversy, particularly around certain donors. But I will say that one of my favorite places to be on the planet is the Metropolitan Museum of Art. I kind of grew up there. Mm -hmm. Um, And, uh, you know, I still my brother and I still have our favorite places we like to go when we go to the museum. Um, And so to see them shift how they displayed the collection and also shift the patterns and practices of acquisition, was so awesome and so amazing um and it does give me a sense that there is a bigger audience for black art than black people which i always knew and even than collectors you know carrie james marshall recently set a record for I think it was it might have been um, Sean Puffy Combs, who bought the work, set a record, I think, for a living artist, a living black artist, um, s- sold a beautiful painting. Um, and so I know that collectors there's an audience for collectors. But then this, you know, to be in the museum, to be on the walls or even to be in the collection and not on the walls, but especially on the walls, is to be part of art canon and the hist- art historical record. And then then by extrapolation, the human record in ways that are so important and influential and valuable. And, you know, it's fun to think that, you know, I'm producing in this tradition that can have the attention of the world. Mm -hmm. Um, And it deserves that attention. Um, I would say also that I think African-American art plays a really unique role not just the music which you know black music is so wonderfully influential in black style the black uh, visual aesthetics um in terms of dress and hair but also black visual art and literature because it tells the story of the survival of a sense of blackness in a nation that it has that preserved slavery for a very long time mm-hmm. and also that um has never been majority black. Um you know, I think there are other places where in the in the west where black people were enslaved in a similar way, chattel slavery in which you are not considered a person and you inherit your non-personhood from your mother. Mm-hmm. Um if your mother was a the non-person who was enslaved, then so are you. Um you know, if if I understand my history correctly, that was throughout the Americas. But in most of the places um, where there were large numbers of enslaved Black people, mm-hmm. those were majority Black people. The enslaved people outnumbered the enslavers, but that has never been true in the United States. Mm-hmm. And to speak from that perspective and to somehow shore up and create a movement around the pride and beauty of Black people and their culture, um, it's, it's a heavy lift. Mm-hmm. But the work that has come before, come out of that Um, Built to that and then come beyond that, that history is is so wonderful and powerful. And I love that it is being acknowledged. And I, I love being part of the black artist tradition all along. But it was transformative to see that some place that I valued, I didn't have to just think, oh, I like this museum, even though it doesn't really show a lot of black artists. I'm like, I like this museum, and look at this. On the wall is a giant painting by Kerry James Marshall, mm. one of my favorite Black living artists. Mm-hmm. Um, museums have made some really important changes, mm-hmm. and it matters to me, mm. for sure. Mm.
0: Well, Awan, it's been lovely to talk with you today. Thank you again. Can you tell us one more time where we can see your work?
1: Oh, yeah. Um, you can find my work on awanmance.com, And it has links to some of the projects I'm working on and also to 1001 Black Men.
0: Well, as always, it's a pleasure to talk to you.
1: Thanks for having me, too. It's been really fun talking to you.
0: You're listening to Art Heals All Wounds. Remember to be in touch on my Facebook page, Art Heals All Wounds, and also on Twitter and Instagram at Art Heals Podcast. If you want to learn more about the work of Awan Mance, you can visit her website at awanmance.com. That's A-J-U-A-N-M-A-N-C-E dot com. She also has work in two recent anthologies, Menopause, A Comic Treatment, which is a New York Times Best Graphic Novel of the Year selection, and the recently released COVID Chronicles. And some very, very exciting news. Awan has just signed a deal to produce a children's book due out in 2023. Special thanks to Rafael Espinoza and the telemac for their help in the production of this podcast.